hope you enjoyed that glimpse of the, of the Arctic from Gideon and Cassidy, who are just starting a new ministry there. And just to encourage you to, to continue to pray for them as they get settled, as they learn the language, as they learn the culture. And again, the goal of the ministry, they have a, a long-term goal there. They want to, to plant a church that will do all the, the worshiping in the heart language of the people. So not an English-speaking church, but a heart language church. Um, and they're there with a the team, and I just really hope that they continue to give us updates uh, like that. And then we can be, be grateful that even as uh, our summers are short, they're not quite as short as they are in the Arctic. Just the other day, I was uh, at the Super Thrift in town. So that's the new thrift store location on Main Street for Adult and Teen Challenge. And I'm like many of you, I like to find some really good deals. And so I was there going through the racks of clothes, and I found a Jets jersey. But this Jets jersey, there was a problem. It was a fake. It was a counterfeit. And you could tell because the design wasn't even right. It had stripes where it shouldn't be. And, but it was clearly trying to pass itself off as the real thing. And, and it tricked somebody at Adult and Teen Challenge because they priced it for $39.99. I was like, someone's going to buy a fake jersey at a thrift store for $40. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, we're going to have Adult and Teen Challenge come join us here on October 22nd for church. And maybe, just maybe, I'll let them know about the Jets jersey. Or perhaps by then there'll be some poor sap walking around with an overpriced counterfeit on their hands. Now, obviously, there's no point in settling for something that's fake or for counterfeit. And the reason is that a counterfeit thing will never deliver on the promise that it seems to make. That can be true in sports, jerseys, and memorabilia, but it is true in any law, uh, anything in life that, that's counterfeit, even counterfeit money. Once someone realizes that this is not real money, it, it doesn't spend anymore. It's not worth anything. It has this promise of being worth value, but in the end, it's just a bunch of wasted paper. What is truly real and what is counterfeit is at the heart of our story this morning when we, when we learn about Paul and Barnabas and their experience in Lystra. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. We're going through Acts, and, and how did we get all the way from the conversion of Saul to somebody named Paul and this other dude Barnabas in a town called Lystra? Well, that is a great question. We're going to need to fill in some of the blanks, but before we do, I'd invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we dig into your word, I pray that you would send your spirit here to be our guide, our guide into what is true, our guide in what has been revealed by you, our guide into this relationship that we know you desire with us. And so I pray that as we uh, hear some of these stories of Paul and Barnabas and their missionary journeys, God, that we would not uh, feel too disconnected from something that happened so long ago. It's still your revealed word, and the lessons that you have uh, for those who listen to them are also lessons you have for us today. So with this in mind, God, I pray that you would be with us here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we did move quite a bit here in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 14 in particular. And when we read about the conversion of of Saul, after this happened, he was on his way to Damascus to to persecute Christians, and then he he experienced Jesus in a real and miraculous way. It, It took him a number of years, probably three years or more, to be fully admitted into the church, where he people were convinced that this was a true conversion. It didn't happen just in the blink of an eye. Remember, Saul was someone who had this religious vendetta against Christians, followers of the way. 
He had taken it upon himself after overseeing the stoning of Stephen to go into Jerusalem and the well-known Christian leaders there, he would enter their homes and he would put them into prison. And then he was on his way to Damascus to do much the same thing. He is he's well-known for all the wrong reasons in the church. And so you can't blame the church and the church leaders for being hesitant about fully accepting Saul into one of their ranks. And so because of this, Paul did, uh, or Saul this time, did a lot of traveling even before he went on any missionary journeys. And you know what this means? This means we get to use a map and a laser pointer. So let's bring that up. I know it's really small. That's fine. You don't really have to know where these places are anyway, but just indulge me for a little bit. So Damascus is right here. And so Saul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, and right outside of that city, he had his Jesus experience. Now, we have this little note in Galatians, kind of in passing, that that Saul didn't go immediately to Jerusalem. He, in fact, went to Arabia for a little bit of time. He wandered in the desert. Maybe this was his wilderness experience like Jesus. He needed to maybe find himself. We don't know what happened there, but I think this was part of Saul's own spiritual formation. So he goes to Arabia. He comes back to Damascus preaches there, gets in trouble for it, is lowered with a basket outside the walls, and then he does go to Jerusalem, where there he does not get immediately accepted. The the apostles don't really say, hey, welcome here. I'm glad you decided to switch teams. In fact, Barnabas now appears in the story, and he's the one that helps convince the church in Jerusalem that Saul is legitimate. And so Saul is eventually accepted, and he's preaching. And it's not the church that now pushes back. It's the, the Jews and the Gentiles of Jerusalem that don't accept the gospel, get, in, get really mad at, at, at Saul. And so he needs to go all the way back to Tarsus. Tarsus is his hometown. So he has to go into hiding. Maybe he missed his mom's home cooking. I don't know. But he goes all the way back to Tarsus, which is up here. And that's where he hangs out for a little bit. Now, meanwhile, Barnabas has been in a church in Syria called, in a place called Antioch, right up here. And they are having Jews and Gentiles alike come to faith, and they are needing to sort out what that looks like in a church. And Barnabas, I think, this is me interpreting things a bit, I think he says, hey, I know a guy who's really suited for that task, a guy who is a a devout Jew and a trained Pharisee, and someone who's a Roman citizen and knows Greek culture and philosophy. His name is Saul. So he goes to Tarsus and brings Saul back to the church in Antioch. And that really becomes Saul's first home church. He's there with Barnabas and other leaders. They're they're building this church in Antioch and Syria. They're bringing Jew and Gentile alike uh, into this brand new church of Jesus Christ. And during this time, they are given a task. There's a prophecy that comes to the church in Antioch saying there's going to be a, a famine in Judea. And so Paul and Barnabas are given the task to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You can see what kind of journey that would have been. And they send aid to the brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. And then when they return back to Antioch, they bring John Mark with them. And that's important because John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. You get a sense of some of how he knew where these events would have happened. So now they're back in their home church in Antioch in in Syria. And at this point, the travels have only just begun. Paul and Barnabas seem quite inseparable, and they are commissioned to go on the first missionary journey together. I want to read from you just a brief couple of verses in Acts 13 to see how this commissioning happened. So the church in Antioch is gathering together. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so God has, has put on Paul and Saul and Barnabas this, this really in particular commission. And, and they have an ascending church. Their home church in Antioch prays for them, lays hands on them, and sends them on this first missionary journey. And it is this first missionary journey that they eventually end up in Lystra, but not right away. So we need another map. Can you bring up the second map? This is their first missionary journey. Again, I know it's small, but bear with me. Here is Antioch in Syria, their home church right up here. And what happens at the beginning is Paul and Barnabas and John Mark set sail for the island of Cyprus. Uh, They land in 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 the town of Salamis and then eventually get to this town called Paphos on the western side of the island. And Paphos is an important story because uh, Saul now officially changes his name to Paul right after he leads a Roman proconsul to faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting because often when I read the Bible, if you were to ask me, when does Saul become Paul? I'd say, on the road to Damascus. And that very well may be true. His new identity in Christ began then. But it wasn't until this experience in Cyprus that Saul becomes Paul. And we can refer to him in that name from here on out. From Paphos, they sail north to Perga on here. And it's at Perga that, that Mark remembers he left the oven on and he has to go all the way back to Jerusalem. He, uh, he has to return home. I'm not sure what his reason was. It wasn't a bad reason, but he, he goes back home. And then Paul and Barnabas, they continue on. From Perga, they go up to Antioch. Not the same Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And this is Antioch in Syria where they started from. And in Antioch, they start to get some opposition to preaching the good news. And so they have opposition from the Jewish community in Antioch. And so then they decide to leave. And they go east to Iconium right here. And in Iconium, there's many Jews and Gentiles that are converted. But then there are those who are hostile to the gospel that they want to do harm to Paul and Barnabas. There's a plan to stone them. But they learn of the plan ahead of time. And so then they flee, but not very far. They go from Iconium to Lystra, just a little bit to the south. And it's at Lystra where we'll be finally done with these maps and we can pick up our story in Acts chapter 14. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, that's where we will be in greater detail. Get all this? Wow. Uh, Paul was really putting on the frequent flyer miles in his, in his early days as a Christian. And that became a hallmark. He was either in prison or traveling around preaching the good news. But Paul and Barnabas are now at Lystra, which is a small town here in southern Galatia, And they're preaching the good news. But things start to go a little bit sideways when Paul is preaching and he sees a man. And this man has been lame since birth. But there is something about it. The discernment that that Paul gets in this moment, I have to get used to going from Saul to Paul. So Paul gets this discernment and he knows that, that this man has the faith to be healed. And so he says to him, stand upright on your feet. And then in that moment, the lame guy, gets up. He springs up. He doesn't just kind of test it out. He, he leaps up and he finds that he can actually walk for the first time in his life. And a miracle has happened. And this miracle is also one of these things that has become a hallmark of, of those Christian leaders that we read about in Scripture. It's very similar to the story of Jesus in John 5, where he heals the lame man by the pool, who'd been lame since birth. Very similar to Peter and John, in Acts chapter 3, where the beggar asks for gold, but instead they say in the name of Jesus Christ, take up your mat, stand up, and walk. 
And I think Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, is is very intentionally painting for us a picture that the same authority and the same way that God used and worked through Jesus and, and Peter and John and those apostles is now the same way he's working through Paul. This is, this is adding to the credentials that we see Paul have, just knowing that God is at work in him in the same miraculous way as Jesus and the very first apostles. But regardless, that was not a detail that those who experienced this miracle would have been interested in. They were much more interested in the fact that they knew this guy had never been able to walk. And now here's this guy, Paul, says, stand up and walk, and now he can do so. A miracle has occurred. And as always, every time there's a miracle that happens in the midst of people, it's met by a response. But this response was quite different. Here's what we see in Acts 14, 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. (laughs) So this was a different type of response, not necessarily meant just with celebrating the moment, not met with hostility towards the moment. No, what happened in this moment was that Paul and Barnabas were mistaken for Greek gods. And I get it. I mean, it's happened to me a time or two as well. I'm glad, Karen, Karen, you laughed the loudest. My wife laughed the loudest at that joke, and I knew it was going to happen. They were mistaken for Greek gods. But when we put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Lystra, it makes sense. Because what had happened? They had seen an unmistakable exercise of power. It was a miracle. No one was denying that. And so these people who have grown up in this Greco-Roman world, people who are steeped in Greek mythology, who have been taught power looks this way, they attributed this show of power to, to what they had always been taught. The only source that they knew. They saw what they expected to see, and it became a barrier for them to the good news of Jesus Christ. They saw what they expected to see. If this was a miracle that only a god could accomplish, then it must be Zeus who did it. Because since they were little, that's what they had been taught. They saw what they expected to see. And as much as we have moved on from Greek mythology today, or at least in in believing it, I still love to read about it, there are plenty of examples of this still happening. The truth is that we are blind to the truth when we see what we expect to see. When we go in with with our own worldview and expectations and background and lens, none of us are a blank slate. And so when we see what we expect to see, it can actually keep us from the truth. For them, it was Greek mythology and Greek gods. For us today, if we see a miracle, well, then there must be some sort of medical explanation, some, some scientific explanation. We don't need any type of myth, especially Christian mythology. We've explained it now. There's a rational, provable reason for this. We see what we expect to see and explain it that way. Or perhaps you're getting into a theological or philosophical debate and you'll talk about some of the truth claims of Scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, that can't be true because truth is subjective. You have your truth. I have my truth. That's the way that I've been taught. That's the way that I see the world. 
So then the claim of Jesus, that can't be true. It's an obstacle when we see what we expect to see. And then there's this evidence of lives changed by the good news of Jesus. And we've, we've heard many different stories shared from this very stage, which I think is the most irrefutable proof that what Jesus claims or what the Bible claims about Jesus is true. And yet we can come into this to say, no, that's not the explanation. People are making better life choices. They're more disciplined. Uh, they're reading the right books, listening to the right speakers. They are bettering themselves. We see what we expect to see. And that can blind us to the truth of what God is doing in our midst. We've come a long way from Greek mythology, but that lesson rings true today. Well, Paul and Barnabas are really surprised at this. And looking back, I probably would have coached Paul to say, hey, do you remember when Peter did it? He said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Maybe next time you heal someone, you could add that little thing in, clear up any confusion. But they weren't expecting this response. And so they come out and, and they are adamant. They're tearing their garments. They're trying, to, they're trying to get this mob of happy people to realize that they're not understanding what actually happened. They want to set the record straight. And this is how they do it in Acts 14, 14 and following. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained from the people from offering sacrifice to them. So they go and they try to pump the brakes on this thing. We are not gods. But what is their main argument? What is that one thing that Paul and Barnabas want these people to realize? They're saying in as many words as possible, don't settle for a counterfeit. Don't settle for something that is fake, something that is, that is second best, something that can't deliver on the promise of what you think to be true in this moment. And they start by saying, don't trust in us. We are not Greek gods. We are not the avatars of, of Zeus and Hermes. We are just human beings like you with all the limitations that that includes. Don't trust us. We are just human beings. And while, again, we are not in the same cultural situation as those in southern Galatia at this moment, we also have this penchant in the church for putting far too much, too much trust in human beings. And, and if I look at the church in North America in particular, I see a trend where, where a very charismatic and powerful Christian leader will gain a huge following of people, whether it's pastoring a megachurch or becoming a well-read author or having the reach that now technology and social media allows. And then there will come a time in which the limitations of the broken sinfulness of this human being who, who may be a leader and still is broken and still is sinful, when that surfaces, then it can, can create a huge crisis of faith because too much trust was put in the person and not enough trust was put in Jesus Christ. And so whoever you look up to in your life, whether it's an influential Christian leader, whether it is as a parent, whether it's a friend whose faith you always just want to emulate and you look up to, whether it's your own pastor, I don't know. The reality is we are all broken, limited, sinful human beings. I'm a sinner saved by grace, just as you are. And inevitably, we will all see the truth of that. 
Don't place your trust in human beings. Place your trust in Christ alone. Paul and Barnabas go on to say, not only should you not be trusting in us, but you shouldn't be trusting in us even if we were Greek gods, right? Don't trust in them either. He says, you've got it all backwards. We came to preach and to display that that there is one true living God. We wanted to work a miracle like this so that you would turn away from these vain things. That's the way Paul describes it in Acts 14. Vain. Vain meaning worthless, lifeless, empty, counterfeit. Don't continue to believe what you've been taught. There is no hope or power and authority in these things. And, and, and to call them vain was really the exact same way that we see idolatry described in the Old Testament, where, where the prophets of God would go to a wayward people and say, why do you worship something that is made of wood or stone or silver? You know that they're fake. You know that they're lifeless. These things are in vain. We have wonderful stories like that, that story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where he and the prophets of Baal are trying to beseech their deities to bring fire down from heaven. And the prophets of Baal are spending hours and hours doing everything they can. And my favorite part of that story is that when Elijah starts to talk trash, I love it. He talks smack to them. He's like, hey, maybe your God's sleeping or on vacation or going to the bathroom. I'm like, oh no, he didn't. And he did. But what does Elijah know? He knows that there's no one there to answer, that their hope is hope in vain. It's worthless. It's lifeless. It's without power. Well, and of course, Elijah steps back and douses the altar with water a number of times and says, please, God, where is power now? Just in the Old Testament, this is the same lesson that Paul wants these people to learn Trusting in something, anything other than God, is trusting in something that is in vain, that is counterfeit, that can't deliver on its promise. And I know we've spoken about this before, but idolatry today isn't in the form of of idols, isn't in the form of false gods. It's in the form of these things that we trust far more than we ought to. Things like money, where we can fall into this mindset of, if I just have enough to, to, to purchase everything I need to live in comfort, then that is my source of happiness. That is a vain thing that can't deliver its promise. It doesn't have to be money. Perhaps it's power. I just, I want to be able to control the environment and the things around me. So if once I have the final say at home and at work, then life will be the the way that it needs to be for me. That is worthless. It's lifeless. And it doesn't have to be power or money. It can be recognition. I I, want to pursue something that that will give me a legacy. People will, will remember me far after my time here on earth. And it might last a little longer that will fade because it's not true. It's fake. It's a counterfeit. It is vain. It's lifeless. And perhaps you're big into sports and you just love winning. And winning is a wonderful feeling. I don't experience it too often when I play sports. But when you do, it's a mountaintop experience. But what happens when you start the next season? You're right back to ground zero. You can never keep sustaining that feeling. It doesn't deliver the promise that many people hope that it will. We are not to trust in these vain things. Instead, we are to trust the living God. And that's the argument that Paul brings forward here. He says, God is the one true God, and he is living. And the reason we know this to be true is because he is the creator of the universe. He has created it all. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
These are the credentials of the one true God. So why should we leave our Greek gods to, to follow Yahweh, the one true God? Well, just look around you. Creation is this testament to the power of God. This is an example of natural grace. God revealing his existence and his person and his personality and even his love towards people through the beauty of creation. And the problem is, the problem still is today, that we can go outside and we can look around us and we can see the beauty of creation. But at some point, at the beginning of human history until now, there have been people that have come and can acknowledge this beauty, can acknowledge this complexity, but they stop one step short. And instead of allowing this to be a beauty that points to worship of the Creator, they begin to, to settle for worshiping the created things, for loving them in and of themselves, for worshiping them as the end-all and the be-all. And what was meant to point to the evidence of a God who created all things in beauty and complexity now becomes something that keeps people from him. This was something that, that Paul didn't talk about only here in his experience in Lystra. He talks about it in greater detail in his letter to the Roman church, chapter 1, verse 19 and following. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, being the unrighteous, those who do not yet know God or do not yet follow God, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the true deal for something fake and counterfeit. So close, yet so far away. Creation ought to draw us closer to God, not further away. Our last leadership team meeting, I just asked uh, people to share their, what, what, what might be some of their God moments during the course of the summer uh, where, where they just really felt close to God in a way. And, and, and Mark Carr shared about how that time came when he was not with his family. He said... Okay, so fine. It really came when he was alone on a fishing boat in the Canadian Shield. And in that moment, you just look up and you see the beauty and the complexity of creation. And for Mark, that was a significant spiritual moment. And I get that. I feel much the same way. It's one of the reasons why I love summer and going out to the Canadian Shield. You might feel the same way too. And this is all designed to do that. It's designed to bring us to the Creator. We should not stop short of that. But God is not only the Creator. He is the Sustainer of everyone, causing rain to fall on Jew and Gentile alike, righteous and unrighteous alike, Christian and unchristian alike. God shows his loving kindness by providing for those who have needs. He is a creator and a sustainer. And, and this argument is a compelling one, and it barely holds all of that mob and Lystra at bay. They, they want to offer sacrifices. They want to believe they're Greek gods, but it's enough to placate them for a time. And everything seems to be settling down until Jews from Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium come to stir up the crowd. So if you remember that map, there was a few places in Antioch and then Iconium in which there was direct opposition to Paul and Barnabas. And while they left before trouble could spring up there, people followed them and they made trouble for them. And then in a moment, Paul and Barnabas go from hero to zero. 
And it seems a bit like whiplash. Like how in the world could this mob want to venerate them as gods in one moment and then stone them the next? But I think it makes sense because if Paul and Barnabas work this miracle, supposed miracle, and say, don't worship us, then if the opposition comes in and says, they're fakes, they're phonies, this is a scandal, then maybe the fact that they didn't want to be worshipped would add to that narrative. But whatever the case may be, the Jews come in from Antioch and Iconium, they stir up the crowd, and then they, um, <laughs> they go after Paul and Barnabas. And they stone Paul, and they drag him out of the city to the point where they thought he was dead. And they leave him there, left for dead. Remember the call of, Paul and, and, uh, call of God in Paul's life? That he would reach Jews, Gentiles, kings, and he would suffer. All too true. But Paul was not dead. In fact, the disciples come around him, and he gets up, and he moves to the next city, and then he keeps preaching. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like to keep preaching after you were stoned to the point of being left for dead. I mean, some Sundays I wake up, I'm like, oh, my throat is sore. I don't know if I can do this. I mean, he was, he was on death's doorstep. He continues to minister. He continues to preach the gospel and live out the call of God in his life. Well, Paul and Bar- Barnabas head down to that next town called Derby. Then they retrace their steps all the way back home to Antioch and Syria, strengthening the believers and the churches that they just planted. And this is the final and I think very important detail that we can bring from our story. The fact that they didn't hustle home, but they retraced their steps. And all those believers that that accepted the good news of Jesus, that started these churches, they strengthened them and encouraged them before they went home. This is how it's described in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They didn't leave them just to their own devices. They wanted to make sure that they were stable in their belief and in their community before they left. But they also let them know, and I'm sure Paul showed his, his scars on his body from being so recently stoned, and they let them know that you are going to suffer for the cause. That this is not an easy thing to believe. This is not an easy way to follow. But they also knew that when you suffer, you need to be strengthened. Suffering requires strengthening. If it wasn't apparent to you yet, this Christian life is not a guarantee of the absence of suffering It's not a guarantee of smooth sailing. In fact, it's a guarantee of exact opposite. We are all called, all warned, all told that in some way we should expect to suffer for the good news of Jesus. Jesus said it. Peter said it. Paul states it here. So we should not be surprised when suffering comes. We should not be surprised by the storms. I took an ill-fated canoe trip many years ago with my family on Big White Shell Lake. And we had this plan to go and do a portage and then get to an island on the next lake, and then tent there, and then come back. And then as we were about to go, and everything was loaded up into the canoes, we saw some pretty dark clouds in the distance. We said, ah, they're pretty far away. Ah, they're not going to come our direction. It's going to skirt around us. So we went ahead, and as soon as we got to the portage, it absolutely poured on us. We were portaging in mud up to our knees and our thighs, and then we couldn't even set up our tents. We slept under the canoes with a tarp on top on a rock. Why in the world would we have gone on that journey? Why did we expect that storm to go anywhere else? Why were we surprised? Well, in our life, we should not be surprised by storms. The promise isn't that we avoid these things. 
We should not be surprised by them. But in the middle of it, we can look to having ourselves strengthened. With this inevitable suffering, we need to be strengthened to endure. And that happens by the Holy Spirit, and it happens by our brothers and sisters in Christ. God strengthens us as part of his promise to his people. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, says the Lord to his people, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. God is not just your creator. He is your sustainer. He is the real deal. He has power and authority. He is the one true living God, and he has promised to use his life and his power and his love to strengthen you in times of need. So do not be surprised by the storm, but do not think that you are on your own. You have not settled for a counterfeit. You have not hoped in a vain thing. You have hoped in the one true living God. And we are also called then to be strengthened by our brothers and sisters in Christ. One such example of this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is something that you can receive here at church and at Stony Brook Fellowship. My hope is that no matter how long you are part of our group and our family, that you would say, this is a church that strengthened me when I needed it. And my hope is that you can also say, no matter how long I was a part of this church and this family, I was someone who strengthened others when they needed it. And today in the announcements, you'll see that we put an insert in your bulletin for our small groups. We call them fellowship groups here. And and these groups are one of the best ways that we can organize to strengthen people in time of need. And many of the groups will meet every other week, and they'll do Bible studies. But probably the favorite moment in my group is when we share with one another and when we pray for one another. And I'll I'll never forget the moment that I got the diagnosis from my mom, that she was probably not coming home from the hospital. And it was you on my doorstep with food, thank you, (laughs) with cards, with gift cards, and with hugs. And I found strength in that particular storm in this family. And my hope is that I can pass it on to you, and you can receive, and you can give. And in that way, we will know that we have not settled for something counterfeit, but the love and the strength of God flows through us to one another. We're going to sing one final song declaring the holiness and majesty of the one true God. But before that, I want to ask you a few questions in conclusion. Are your eyes open to the truth? Are you really looking with an open heart and mind? Or do you only see what you expect to see, like those in Lystra? Are you settling for a counterfeit? Have you been, have you been too, placing too much trust in, in people, or money, or power, or success, or the feeling of victory? Or do you realize that God alone is your creator and he is the living God? And are you being strengthened in your suffering? God is also your sustainer, promising to provide for you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are his hands and feet to lift you up. And in this way, we live in the truth that we have not settled for something where hope is vain. I'd invite you to stand and let's pray together once more. Father God, we want to acknowledge you that you are, you are the creator. You are the one true God. You and you alone are living and active in a way that can sustain us in anything this life throws our way. God, I pray that we would be people with eyes wide open who refuse to settle for anything that cannot deliver on the one promise that you can. 
God, I pray that we would live this out by strengthening each other with the same message of hope of who you are, of what you have done for us, and how you walk with us every step of the way. May we praise you in our lives, in our hearts, and in our words through this song. Amen. Amen.